You're listening to Vernacular Podcast. Hello and welcome to episode 10 of Vernacular. I'm Zach. And I'm Sally. 10 episodes. Man, it's hard to believe we made it this far. Yeah, and still going strong. Although I guess really, technically... This is more than 10 episodes because we had that special episode with Dick Carroll. That's true. And we had our first episode, 00. Right. Which is, yeah, those are mini episodes. So good job on 12 episodes, Sally. Yeah, you too. So here we are. We are going to talk with Astrid and Aaron in just a few minutes. But before we do that, you know what time it is. Tip of the week. Hashtag tip of the week. So for our tip of the week this week, we are going to give you ideas about how to beat the heat. It is the middle of July, and at least where we are, it is really hot. It's just in the 90s consistently. and Every day on the forecast is in the, the mid to high 90s. Yes, and getting to the 80s definitely by 8 a.m. And so we are just trying to stay cool. And one of the ways... we're also cheapos and don't run the air conditioning too high in our house. Quite as high as we could, yeah. <laughs> so we set the thermostat as high as we can bear and then just try to use other things to stay cool. <laughs> so one idea is frozen fruit. Put your fruit in the freezer, and it's amazing. Bananas, blueberries. Grapes, peaches. peaches. So delicious. Apples. No, I haven't done apples. <laughs> Papaya. <laughs> Pineapple, though. Pineapple's like? a good one. Yes. Frozen fruit. It's amazing. So yeah, just throw it in a Ziploc bag. Well, chop it up first. Don't just put a whole pineapple in the freezer. That won't do much good for or you. Or just wash your grapes and throw the bag in the freezer. I've done that many times, yep. and it's wonderful. Yep. And then you can take it out and munch on them. Yep. So that's one tip. Another one, an obvious one is eat ice cream. And we've talked before about how much we love the tonight dough, Ben and Jerry's tonight dough. So check that out. We got ours at Walmart. So maybe your local Walmart has yours. I don't know. Yep. You can also combine that frozen fruit with ice cream to make milkshakes. Yep. Which we have yet to do this summer, but we did last summer in Texas. And that was We're pretty good milkshake makers. Yes. We need to bring that back. Another good thing you might enjoy is an outshine bar. Mm. We had these last summer. I don't think we've had them yet this summer. We haven't. But uh, it's basically fruit and fruit juice on a stick. Yeah, delicious. But I think it's all natural and mm-hmm. pretty low in sugar. It's just so fruit, yeah. Pretty good. Yeah, we also recommend having cold dinners. Don't bother heating your house up at the end of the day when you're already warm and making yourself eat a hot dinner. Just make salads for dinner. We love chicken salads for dinner or quinoa salads for dinner. If you guys are going to get TV dinners, just don't heat them up. (laughs) Just leave them frozen. Perfect. (laughs) No, we don't recommend that. That's disgusting. Frozen Salisbury steak. Delicious. (laughs) Gross. So those are some tips of the week. Oh, well, also you could go to the pool. We recommend right. going to the pool. We Definitely. do that with Run our through daughter. sprinklers. Yep. Yep. Do things, just take showers. Take cold showers. <laughs> <laughs> you know, some really novel ideas we're, we're, we're handing down here. Sit in front of a fan. Dropping some truth bombs. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, good luck staying cool where you are. All right. Next up, Astrid and Aaron. All right, welcome back to Vernacular. We are here with Astrid and Aaron, who are joining us from the East Coast, and we're going to talk with them about a bunch of stuff today that we are looking forward to. But before we do that, Astrid and Aaron, could you introduce yourselves? Hi, I'm Astrid. I work as a research assistant at RAND, uh, where I focus on China issues and foreign policy. But my other job is helping my husband run a hops farm, an organic hops farm in Woodford, Virginia, on a property that we just bought last year. Yep. And I'm Aaron, and I am a hops farmer. Uh, (laughs) 
I guess you could call me the founder of Heritage Hops. What that means is that I have a few little baby hop plants that I'm trying to make strong <laughs> enough to put in your beer. I like it. That's awesome. Well, we definitely have a lot of questions about those things later on in the podcast. But before we get to those, we'll do our normal current event segment and I'll let Sally kick this off. Yeah. Before we talk about beer and all things hops, um, we... so. I know that you all are interested in this topic and it's not really current events, but it's definitely been in the news and been on some of our favorite podcasts. And the topic is, are machines replacing human beings and taking away human jobs? Um, Planet Money had Just a whole brief series. caveat here. The reason that we know, and this is to our listeners, the reason that we know Astrid and Aaron are interested in this topic is because when they filled out their pre-interview questionnaire, they told us they were interested in this. Very helpfully so said this. When they yes. had fun filling out that fun pre-interview questionnaire, they told us this it, was... It was. It was great. Oh, thank you. <laughs> very clever question. <laughs> thank you very much. Oh, I, I didn't expect that. Wonderful feedback. <laughs> and we diligently read them and decided, let's talk about that. So Planet Money had this series um, in May where they talked about, starting way back with the Luddite movement, talking about the advent of technology and different machines that were replacing human jobs and how some jobs went away, but they were always replaced by new jobs. And so it's never really been a problem. But economists are concerned again about machines taking the place of humans and humans being without jobs. And the question is, should we be scared about this? Or do we have nothing to fear? Because Every time in the past this has happened, new jobs have been created because as we have machines, we have more leisure. As we have more leisure, we have more chance to be creative and we think up new things and we end up having new jobs. So machines, should we fear them? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess that's a, as good a place as any to start. Um, so what got me really interested in this idea as someone who spends you know, a, a good portion of the week figuring out how to get to work and working in a cubicle and thinking about work. Aren't cubicles amazing? <laughs> they really are. <laughs> and even thinking about work at home as, you know, uh, you can check your email at any time. Even though I have to sign into a VPN, everything is always accessible. So I feel this pressure to, to constantly be thinking about work. And so this idea of what if machines take away jobs or what if what if we live in a world where there isn't enough work for everyone where we're not working what would that world look like at first my impulse would would be to think that that would be awesome but it would actually be pretty problematic and there are all of these things that uh, planet money does a really good job of discussing i think like what would it look like if perhaps we since we're not earning an income, what if we don't use money anymore? Would people return to a, sort of a barter and trade system where they're, you know, they develop a, they're artisans and craftsmen and they spend time working on their, their particular craft and use that at, to trade for food from, you know, perhaps we would become farmers since we already happen to have a farm in the works, you know? So it was just... Yeah, I could see my seashell collection becoming very handy potentially. <laughs> exactly what if all these collector's items actually end up having some sort of worth when you trade them for food or i have like four thousand baseball cards from my childhood maybe i could make something with those <laughs> yeah, you and you aaron go. both i think so. nice <laughs> yeah my mom keeps going to yard sales and buying me more and more baseball cards, so, <laughs> that's know, awesome you like cash out yeah, um, yeah maybe but kind of coming at that from the other perspective as a small business owner 
I can see, you know, and everything that I do with the hops, I, I don't have a whole ton of equipment, but all the equipment that I have at one time would have been human labor doing all these tasks that I can now do by myself with machines. And I can, you know, there's a reason why the world went from being dominated, employment being dominated by the family farm to now everybody being able to move on and specialize in different areas uh, because, you know, with tractors and all the different kinds of agricultural technology that we have now, uh, it makes it a lot easier for just one guy and some machines to do the work that might have taken 10 or 20 people. Right. In so many ways, machines have made our lives better. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. That's why I'm kind of, you know, I'm not so worried about uh, this whole will machine take our jobs argument because so far it seems to me that for the vast majority of people, they improve lives rather than do any sort of destruction. Yeah. Well, one way to think about this, I I still don't quite know where this logic leads, I guess, but I I think a lot about um, something like Uber, right? That technology has ended up not replacing jobs, but in a way still creating more jobs, right? It's just a different kind of labor. It's this sort of contingent labor where people are freelancing, people are using the technology to turn what may have been leisure time where they weren't able, or, or perhaps these are unemployed people who are able to use this too, people who otherwise wouldn't have had jobs, technology is enabling them to work in a way that wouldn't have been possible previously. But then I think, what about, everyone's also talking about self-driving cars, right? That's a huge technological leap, at least, you know, from our perspective now, especially from my perspective as someone who isn't particularly fond of driving, I commute by train every day. <laughs> but w- how will that change things? My first impulse would be to think, well, all of these people who drive, whether via Uber or as you know, cab drivers, all of those jobs will be gone. But perhaps there's really just some other, there, what, what they would have been doing now Will be their efforts will be redirected somewhere else. There will be some other neat place where their work is needed, that's yeah. facilitated by technology rather than, you know, focusing on the technology replacing them part. I don't know if that makes any sense. No, that makes perfect sense because I think it is hard to be all doom and gloom about it because we can't know what technology will bring, what kind of new jobs it'll bring. Um, when the industrial revolution happened, we didn't know that someday there would be computers and cellular phones that would result in all of these other possible jobs for people. So yeah, I think, I think you make a good point. Yeah. On the other side though, I think, you know, there is a very stark reality that the technological age has brought and that's that you can build these massive economies of scale around very small numbers of people. Right. You know, so, um, Facebook has what seven thousand employees. Yeah. Um, Instagram, when it was purchased for a billion dollars by Facebook, had like less than twenty, I think. Yeah. But if history is any indication, every time we've had some sort of thrust forward into new technology, we've somehow been able to, as a society, adapt enough that we don't have massive number of people out of work. I guess the first thing I would say is, and this might sound really weird, but I'm skeptical about using history as an indication of the future. I mean, I think history has a certain utility for predicting where we could go next, but that's that's really only if you assume that history is entirely cyclical. And if you don't accept that assumption at face value, and this is kind of a meta-theoretical question, but if you don't accept that assumption, then you can't necessarily say, 
you know, history indicates that this will happen. Yeah, Zach, I agree with you. I think I think as we move forward, we're going to see a pretty big change from what's happened in the past. I think I think having more technology really breaks down a lot of barriers in terms of starting your own businesses and uh, you know trying to go from rags to riches. But if you're just trying to do a slow progression up and break into middle class, I think you can prove a lot tougher. As we see, you know, jobs like servers and restaurants being placed by kiosks or retail jobs disappear. Yeah, definitely. And that your comment makes me think of another uh, concern I have, which is a slightly different angle on this as well. But the fact that there, there, the, te- the technology has enabled the startup in the way that you just mentioned that, you know, you can go from rags to riches means that a lot of people have shifted their attention from wanting to specialize in, you know, manual labor jobs mm-hmm. to wanting to learn how to code so that they can, you know, be a part of the Instagram style success story, be part of a small team and, you know, get a 10, $10 million plus payout when their company is purchased, you know, that's their exit strategy. And that's, that's fine. I mean, that's, that's a, that's a key part of our economy right now, but I think what's not fine is when so many people try to do that, that we have basically this huge um, artificial tech bubble essentially build up. And so we have an economy that's potentially less strong than it looks because we have you know so much human capital poured into uh, really what is a, a very small cross-section of the, the real economy, if that makes sense. Yeah. And yeah. I think you'll see, uh, I think this problem of inequality that we're currently, that's currently becoming an issue is just going to keep getting worse and worse with time as you have people who strike it rich with big ideas and people who try to follow their big or what they think are their big ideas and don't do so well. Yeah. And then, and then when they don't do so well, they're left with potentially very little marketable skills. You know, I mean, I'm afraid of another dot com bust, you know, another dot com bubble bursting, all the venture capital money dries up and these people who have learned how to code all of a sudden can't find jobs in Silicon Valley uh, but they don't know much beyond that, so they're left with very little. I, I've been thinking about this a lot lately because it seems like a lot of the job, the new jobs for people our age are out in Silicon Valley, right? Um, so I know I actually know someone who it, who had the job that um, that I currently have um, previously, and he is going out to Silicon Valley to try and enter a code academy and learn how to code and become a software developer and uh i admire that in a way and it seems like a smart move right now but i think you you know it also seems to me like you must need some sort of other kind of experience in the world and with what kinds of problems people need solved in order to make um that kind of coding knowledge valuable in a way and i it's i get what you're saying it seems like it's sort of sort of artificial in a way, right? Like there, there's not a, what is the product in the end, right? Right. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, it's also artificial because, you know, so much of our data is stored in ones and zeros right? that can literally be erased with a magnet. Um, I was in a conversation with some, with some friends of mine the other day about how, um, we're losing access to a lot of our data because it exists in, hardware, you know, be that like slide reels or whatever, slide rolls or whatever, um, that we don't have the machinery or the expertise to read anymore, basically, you know, so like old projection tape, uh, that played silent films, um, even floppy disk. Yeah, I was going to say floppy disk. Exactly. Like how, I mean, I don't have a floppy disk reader. I wouldn't know how to get a floppy disk read if someone handed it to me. 
Yeah. And so, I mean, 20 years from now, I can imagine how difficult it'll be. I mean, think of the VCR, right? Like right. my family has a lot of home videos on VCRs. I, I don't know if I could find a VCR if I went to Walmart right now. My grandparents have one and uh, <laughs> we, were just, we were just spending some time with them and they, they couldn't figure out how to get it running and they asked me to figure it out. And it was, it was tough for me to, to remember how, you know, the, the VCR even worked and how to load the VHS tape and everything. Right. Yeah, exactly. Well, this happened to me the other night. We were, I don't know what we were doing, but someone was describing that you needed to rewind your VHS. Oh, no, no, I was just, I was just recalling how, you know, you had to have like, if you would rewind all the VHSs in your VCR, you would break the VCR, right? So you need to get those those extra rewinders. Yeah. Yeah. And so just the idea of having to rewind it I just completely forgot about that. I mean, it happened in my lifetime when I was a child. We had to rewind the VHS, but I just completely forgot. (laughs) Yeah, it's really strange. Or thinking about, you know, uh, when when I was younger, when I got my first digital camera, taking all these pictures, putting them on my computer hard drive. But now that's like three or four computers ago for me, right? Yeah, exactly. It's all stuck somewhere on that hard drive, but I don't even know if I can get that computer to start up again. Even things that we could currently, that we could still read, we could still technically access that data, you know, in previous eras, I guess they would be in photo albums, right? If you didn't get a photo printed, it didn't exist, really. To go back to one of Aaron's previous points, um, when you were talking about jobs that were likely to become automated, I found this article um, in The Atlantic from early last year, and they have a list of jobs that have... I guess, a 99% likelihood of being replaced by machines and software. And that's about 40% of jobs right now. And then a list of jobs that are very, very unlikely for them to be taken away by machines. And so, for example, some that would be taken away include telemarketers, title examiners, sewers, mathematical technicians, insurance underwriters, watch repairers, et cetera, et cetera. And then jobs that would, I mean, only in your in your dreams would these kinds of jobs be taken away? Um, firefighters, oral surgeons, healthcare, social workers, occupational therapists, mental health, social workers. So jobs that require more direction and diagnosis are the ones that are going to stick around. And so I guess my question is, let's say this happens and all of these jobs that are just kind of built on rules and routines and can be easily programmed into a, a machine. What do we do? what do we do at that point? What do we do for those people who don't have the experience to, to do the other jobs and, or even to get themselves to the point where they could do those jobs. And they, so they're left without jobs period because machines have taken their jobs. Yeah. That's an interesting point. It kind of reminds me of our conversation with Joshua in episode eight. Mm -hmm. If, if I'm a, if I'm the, the CEO of Nike, right. And I'm deciding whether or not I should automate my manufacturing processes in all the Jersey factories that make, you know, apparel. I think there is a serious ethical question there about if you're, um, making these people who have a very specialized skill in sewing, go elsewhere to find work. Um, and they don't have the means to find other work. They, they might not have the means. And, but also I think there's a, there's an implicit statement there saying that basically you're replaceable, like you're replaceable with a, a, a set of cogs and motors that can do the same job that you that you can do. Right, right. I think you both kind of hit the nail on the head. But to your point, Zach, I think as you as you at least as you look back on history, which may or may not be a valid looking glass into the future, this has happened. This has happened all the time, right? The the very Luddite movement itself was about you know these semi skilled laborers uh, who didn't 
really know much else being replaced by machinery. Right. But I think the real question that we have facing us with, uh, with the current speed of technological advancement is how do we as a society make sure that these people are taken care of and have a decent standard of living? It, not only for their own sakes, but just so that we can li- continue to live in the kind of America that that we want to. So I heard one suggestion would be to set a minimum income for people who their jobs are displaced. What do you guys think of that idea? Yes. Yeah, so, you know, if the minimum income essentially, correct me if I'm wrong, but the idea behind it is that if you have, if you're unable to find work, you get a stipend from the government to cover your basic living expenses plus enough for a, a decent standard of living. Right. Yeah, that's how I understand it. Yeah. My question to that is what happens to inflation in this case where everybody's getting free money, which would presumably drive up the cost of goods or drive down the value of goods rather because there's so much free money floating around in this, in this marketplace. So I, 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 this sounds like a great idea on the surface, but I have no idea what would keep prices at a reasonable level so that they don't get out of out of the reach of ordinary people yeah i think i think you've you've identified a really good question about secondary effects you know i think uh doing you know basically doing this sort of unemployment on steroids type of program would risk uh far exceeding your target inflation levels for a healthy economy but another question i think is just where does the money come from because yeah you know we're talking about a situation in which the economy is hurting because so many people are being displaced from jobs. And so, you know, you take a, a, an economy that's already ailing and finding or having trouble supplying enough jobs for people that are looking for jobs. And then you're talking about, you know, using taxes from that economy essentially to, to fund a, a national minimum income. Yeah. Well, and even to get more, even more philosophical about it, is that even a world that we would want to live in where we had so much leisure time that we didn't have to work or that there wasn't incentive to work because we're getting paid some sort of minimum income from the government. Is that, is that really compatible with our flourishing as human beings or, or do we need some sort of, I was listening to an economist on planet money who was saying we need some sort of organizing or driving principle or purpose in our lives. We couldn't just be content to, to sit around and, you know, do whatever we wanted when we wanted. Yeah. Yeah. So a, a couple of thoughts about this. There is a recent article in the Atlantic, I think the July August issue by Derek Thompson about what a post work world might be like. And he talks about this a little bit that especially in America, the idea of work or the, the role that work plays in motivating people and giving them fulfillment and purpose and drive um, is so central to our sense of identity and to our society and culture that America might not be recognizable to us if we didn't have work as a motivating force. Um, so I think that's, and he talks about the psychological influence or importance of work in people's lives. And that even if you can solve the economic problems that we're talking about, the psychological problem might might be much more difficult to solve. And he also mentions um, the idea of, as a means of sort of mixing this psychological influence of work with the idea 
of a guaranteed minimum income, he brings up, to turn back to history again, the um, Works Progress Administration. So the idea that the government in the 1930s was supplying millions of Americans with with jobs, basically. Um, for example, where I'm from in Wisconsin, I know that a lot of our state parks and hiking trails were created at that time because they were trying to search for things for young men to do so they could give them a living wage. And one of the things they could find for them to do was build hiking trails, you know, create, which we're, we appreciate now. But at the time, the, the idea was give them a sense of purpose, give them something to do, and then pay them for it. So could we see some kind of massive public works expansion or is there a solution that doesn't involve the government so directly? It seems like everything we've turned to so far has has involved the government pretty heavily. Yeah, the uh, the history that you just mentioned made me think of the most recent season of House of Cards, which I don't know if you guys watched that show. I've watched part of the season, halfway through. Okay. <laughs> well, are you, are you familiar with America Works? Yes, I am familiar. So it sounds a lot like what you were just mentioning. <laughs> You know, a, a mass. I mean, he compares it to the New Deal in the show, right? This massive governmental program to give a job to any American who wants it, in hopes of enabling the American dream, uh, of which work is an essential part, right? Right. Exactly. I I think if you move into this post-work world where some percentage or even the majority of people don't have traditional jobs as we know them today, I think you're going to find that there are some people who naturally gravitate towards doing something and you know something that we most people would consider constructives either doing something positive in their communities or just right. you know pursuing their own interests and then you'll find other people who are perfectly content to you know freeload <laughs> or not not necessarily freeload but you know do things like watch tv or play video games or just kind sounds of like freeloading to me right <laughs> just kind of hang out and I'm not sure that there's anything wrong with that as long as they're not committing crimes or, you know, being real, real ne'er-do-wells. Real renegades. <laughs> if these people are, you know, if that's what brings them that the highest quality of life, I, I'd be one to say go for it. But I think the real thing you you have to worry about in either of these scenarios is, you know, if if people are losing their jobs, you have to be – or not – losing their jobs and have no place to go, how do you make sure that the society is a stable one, one that people want to live in, and one yeah. that is relatively devoid of crime and people doing nefarious things? Yeah, I guess, though I would still kind of push back a little bit and say that I think even if people say that they would be perfectly content to just kind of sit on the couch and watch TV and quote-unquote freeload, I'm... I'm skeptical about that. I'm skeptical about whether they really would be content to do that, whether there wouldn't, as Astrid pointed out, be some sort of pervasive psychological damage to that kind of lifestyle. Yeah, I think that exactly. I think the question is about what does human flourishing look like? Is work a part of human flourishing? Yeah, well, I think sometimes we need we need that that thing that's other than ourselves. We need to aspire to something in order to reach our fullest extent of flourishing. All right, so Aaron, talk to me about beers. I assume you are quite the expert since you are a hops farmer. Yeah, I don't know if I'd call myself an expert uh, <laughs> at all because there are so many different wonderful beers out there now. It seems like every day there's a new craft brewery open up somewhere, even in Virginia. 
you know, people I think are being uh, much more creative and experimental than probably at any time during, uh, you know, beer creation since it was probably first thought of, uh, you know, <laughs> thousands of years ago. So now you can find beers with all kinds of different fruits in them and spices and fruits and spices and honey and, um, of course, hops, uh, all kinds of different <laughs> The essential hops. ingredients. Right. It's just, it's, I, think, I think now more than ever, there's something out there for everyone. And, uh, you know, it's, it's fun to try out those different kinds of beers and see what works for you and what doesn't. And, uh, yeah. and kind of even as my mood changes, I prefer different beers. So, it's, uh, yeah, it's a great time definitely to be a beer enthusiast. Now, I was, I was uh, reading something somewhere online a few days ago. It was maybe it was on Facebook or something, but apparently there's a young guy who's in his mid twenties and he just achieved a level of master sommelier, which is obviously for wine. But I was wondering, is there a such thing as like a beer or an equivalent of a master sommelier for beer? They're called zymologists. Um, I'm not sure actually if it's zymologists or zymologists, but um, (laughs) uh, zymology is the study of beer. Um, and so people who are experts in, uh, in, in beer are called zymologists and I, I am by no means one of them. Um, <laughs> I try my best to distinguish between the broad, broadest categories of beer, you know, lagers versus ales and, um, you know, IPAs versus blondes and try to, try to pick out the different hops as best as, I, as best as I can. But uh, yeah, I think they're, that's probably something that we'll see take off over the next decade or so as beer becomes more popular i noticed we shop a lot at costco <laughs> and now the beers are sold alongside the wines in the fancy bottle sections in the the fancy crates with all the um you know nice packaging and everything like that so as, as it becomes more of a upscale highbrow uh beverage i guess you'll find more of these beer experts out there that's good I've, I've only recently come to appreciate beer i never really liked it but i've recently started to enjoy some beers so I'm, I'm gonna keep trying to branch out you know when i go to different places try to have you know different beers and try to experiment across the spectrum that's what you got to do you just got to find you know you just got to find what what appeals to you and your unique taste you know ipas are the most popular craft beer type but you know they're they're really not for everybody I know. Yeah. Astrid is not, even though, you know, we're going into this hops thing full force, she's not the biggest fan of the hoppy beers. I'm learning. I can taste them now, but yeah, I'm, I won't sit down with a pint of IPA. It's just not going to happen. Sure. So what does hops bring to the flavor of beer? And then what, so is it like hops versus Wheat? I don't even know what we're the clearly not are. beer experts yeah, here. So <laughs> I'll give you a, a quick, quick and dirty basic. That would be great. Right Thank in, you. in the words of, in the immortal words of Michael Scott, explain this to me like I am a third grader. Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So so basically, in in any normal beer, you have four ingredients. You have water, yeast, barley, and hops. And uh, in traditional, especially German-style beers, that's all that you put into it. And it doesn't have to be barley. It can also be wheat or another uh, grain, or another grain like rye or something like that. But but in general, that's that's what you use to make a beer. And so the 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 malt, either the barley or the wheat or the rye, will provide the sweetness in the beer. And then the uh, the hops are there to provide a bitter balance to the beer. 
And originally, they used to use all kinds of different things when they were brewing beer. They used to use nightshade and all kinds of different spices and everything like that. But the reason hops became so popular is because they're, they have antimicrobial properties. So they allow beer to store without refrigeration uh, you know, for, for longer periods of time so your beer won't spoil if you brew them with hops. And over time, I guess people also really came to like the taste of hops. Um, and yeah, so they're just kind of the, uh, the bitter counterbalance to the sweetness of the, of the malt. Do you want to explain why the IPA in particular is so hoppy? Yeah. So, so there, I think there's some disagreement about this a bit among true, true beer scholars, but, uh, <laughs> what I've always heard is that when the English, or I guess the British were, <laughs> were going around the world colonizing, uh, they needed they one of the common things to take on their long sea voyages was beer because it would last longer than water without spoiling. And then somewhere along the line, they discovered that the more hops they added to the beer, the longer it could survive on the sea voyages without going bad. And so the, the uh, term India Pale Ale comes from these beers that they would brew in in Britain for their long sea voyages to India. So the East India Trading Company would take the IPAs with them? Yeah, I, I guess so, yeah. And they, that's what they would have to drink on their uh, on their long voyages. Because up until that, it was just, I think they were drinking a lot of rum. Uh, but once they found that they could just throw in some more hops without, and the beer would last for longer, uh, I think they found that's a better way to keep the sailors in line. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Okay, so talk to me about being a hops farmer. So I started... Uh, how I got into the hops farming was I started brewing my own beer back when Oscar and I lived in England, and uh, I knew that when I came back to the to the U.S., I would I wanted to do something different. Uh, I'd been working in desk jobs ever since I graduated from college, and I figured I wanted to do something where I could be outdoors, out in the sun, uh, and kind of doing something that I was interested in, which was which was beer and home brewing. And so, of course, to start. To start a brewery of any size requires a lot of startup capital. Um, so I was trying to find a way where I could either make that work or do something related. And then I started doing some research, and these hops seemed to be becoming more and more popular. And so I started, you know, doing a little digging around and um, found that it was something that really appealed to me. And uh, so when we came back here, we decided, decided to buy a piece of land and and a house and just kind of go for it. And so. <laughs> What that means is uh, I came into this, I studied ecology and evolutionary biology in college, but no real agriculture, agricultural sciences or anything like that per se. Um, so I kind of came in this, you know, kind of came into this pretty cold and just tried <laughs> to see, uh, do as much research as I can and get everything up off the ground. So I, I was fortunate enough to get linked up with a group called the Old Dominion Hops Cooperative, who has uh, some hops growers in, in in our area who have been doing this for a few years. It's still a really new industry uh, on the East Coast because uh, they used to grow a lot of hops out in on the East Coast, in Virginia in particular, back in the 1800s. But uh, then there was a big hops blight, and the major production moved out west to the Pacific Northwest. So now people are trying to bring it back. and But fortunately, I've got gotten hooked up with this group who have given me a lot of good information and a lot of good insights into how to grow hops in our unique uh, climate and 
soil and everything like that. So my, my, my average day is going out. I, I drop Ostrid off at the train at 740, mm-hmm. go home. Uh, I'm out there amongst the plants, you know, <laughs> e- e- every, every couple of weeks is a different season. I'm picturing like Jack, Jack and the Beanstalk. He's yeah. hanging out with the plants. <laughs> uh, the hops are actually, they, they're actually pretty crazy plants. They, at their peak, can grow up to about 20 feet high. So wow. this is Jack and the Giant Beanstalk. Yeah. <laughs> so, which means that they're not like normal plants where you just plant the seed in the ground and keep it weeded and set it and forget it. You have to build these big trellises for the hops uh, that they can grow up. And so uh, a big part of my spring was installing these trellises and figuring out, you know, where to purchase all my equipment and uh, how to get it all installed and everything like that. And then once you get the trellises up, uh, they should last for a while. And the hops are supposed to live for up to 25 years. So, so yeah, so every, every couple of weeks is different. I started in March and April uh, getting all my trellises put up. And then as May rolled around, I got my hops delivered, got them all in the ground, got them all irrigated and watered and um, late. And then uh, in June, I started training them up because they have to grow up these these long uh, twines that hang down from the tops of the trellises. So I, I actually got these coconut fiber twines, and then they grow up them until they hit the top of the trellis. And then uh, just, yeah, fertilizing them, keeping them we- all weeded. I just put mulch all around all of them. So I've been fortunate enough to have a good helper uh, <laughs> to help me out through everything. So talk to me about the, do you say coconut twine? Is that and and what you mean by sustainable farming? Because I noticed that on your website that that is a key aspect of your mission. What does that mean exactly, and and how do you incorporate that into your style of hops farming? Sure. Yeah. So so we're not allowed to call ourselves organic yet because we haven't finished going through the whole certification process. Oh wow. Um, so right now we're just trying to you know market ourselves as sustainable and eco friendly. But everything that we do, we use no. We use no herbicides, pesticides, chemical fertilizers, anything like that on the farm. The coconut uh, twine, it's actually called coir that I mentioned, is uh, 100% biodegradable. Uh, So at the end of the season, you take down the vines, you pick the hops off. The hops themselves are actually, for those of you who don't know, are actually little, uh, they're actually flowers that grow on these vines. But they actually look like little little green pine cones. And... uh, (laughs) But they have this, uh, what's called lupulin inside them, which is the uh, the compound that gives the bitter flavor to all the beers. And they can also give different citrusy and floral flavors to the beers. Um, but yeah, so anyway, so we had this uh, coconut coir that's totally biodegradable, which means that at the end of the season, I can just take down the vines after the hops are all off of them and dispose of the, the twine and the hop vines let them compost and, you know, go back into the earth. Um, yeah, so it's all, you know. Trying to make it have as little impact or permanent impact on the land as possible. Yep. Obviously, it's unavoidable in some ways. You have to put sure. the trellises in the ground. but um, Yeah, but we, were, we went all yeah. seal for that, so we didn't have to cut down any trees or anything like that. And um, Right. Yeah, so, yeah, we're just trying to do everything. You know the way that the way that our forefathers would have would have done it. My both my mom's parents grew up on farms, so I have a little family insight into how <laughs> how they uh, how they did things back then. And I'm trying to 
use as many as, of those practices in my own farming as I, as I can. All right, so about one year or so into the uh, farming experiment in Woodford, Virginia, how do you guys think it's going? I think it's going pretty well. Now, I'll let Austrian <laughs> handle this as sort of an objective outside observer. Yeah, so I think I, I've been impressed with the progress that Erin has been able to make. Um, you know, I, I'm a little bit more risk averse, I think, than he is. And uh, starting a business with, you know, little to no experience, uh, farming <laughs> anything really at all, uh, seemed a little scary to me, but we're at a point in our lives where I think it makes a lot of sense. Um, I have a job that I enjoy, uh, doing where I'm actually really lucky to get to put some of my, um, my education to use like specifically what I studied in college I, I was an East Asian studies major um, focusing on China and then I have a master's in international relations so the work that I do on US China relations as a research assistant is pretty relevant so I feel lucky to be doing that um, but while as long as as long as we're young and we don't have too many other uh, other people depending on us, we felt like this was a time to take a little bit of a risk and try this new venture. And it seemed like Aaron had put a lot of time into, into researching things. And, um, I think he's doing really well. There have been some, some surprises along the way. Yeah. Some surprises, some setbacks. Yeah. yeah. We had, um, we had a storm a couple of weeks ago that was really bizarre. It just sort of went quiet around our house and then all of a sudden the wind started rushing past like louder and faster than I think I've ever heard before. Wow. And all the lights in our house went out and we just stood there looking out the window, which was maybe not the smartest thing to do. <laughs> but um, our dining room window looks out onto the onto the harp yard and we saw all of these limbs from It was huge, just twilight. Yeah. Oh no. Just, just make out just the see. figures, yeah. Yes. Oh gosh. So there are these trees that are around, all around our house, like relatively old trees, probably at least 50 years old. And then these limbs were just flying off into the hop yard. And so we were all like worried. Like person thick limbs. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they were, like, oh my gosh. Aaron's arm, not even my arm. Like they were pretty big. <laughs> so it, fortunately, it doesn't seem from what we've observed to have ruined anything permanently. But Aaron had to spend the next day or two redoing some of the things he had just completed like anchoring the twine into the ground um and training some of the hops back around the twine so just i've learned that we think we can control a lot of things but one thing you can't control is the weather and if you have a job that is really dependent on being outside and you know being able to cope with the weather it's a little scary when you can't do that, or, or it's at least hard to plan um, the way that a lot of us have the luxury to be able to plan. Yeah, yes. sure. One thing that I've definitely learned since starting this venture is that you can never underestimate the importance of sunscreen. So <laughs> that's the hashtag tip of the week, so you might want to throw that in while it's summer. Ooh. Oh, good idea. All right. <laughs> I, yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. The, the first, I think the first week or the first day that it was really hot in Virginia, which was, I don't know, early May, it yeah. got hot really early this year, but, um, Aaron, Aaron was like, Oh, I don't need to wear sunscreen. Oh no. <laughs> and it was just his whole, all of his shoulders and his face were red. And since oh. then, pretty, pretty devout sunscreen applier yeah. <laughs> that's good <laughs> that happens to me about once a year <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah but it's it's been an adventure this the business and also owning a home and yeah being being on a farm in general there are a lot more bugs than i thought there would be which sounds really silly lots but... <laughs> of critters yeah that's for sure yeah <laughs> astrid astrid can tell you about this uh we had an, a visitor, that, an unexpected visitor this past winter that, oh, yeah. that really she was pleased <laughs> to welcome into our home. Oh, yeah, no. we have, we've, we don't have a basement, I think. Uh, that's one reason we haven't had too many mice, but we had one this entire year. And it the was mouse? like <laughs> around our kitchen, which was lovely. Oh. We, we really didn't want to, we're, we're both vegetarian and we're kind of, you know, I guess animal lovers and a little bit extremist, I guess some people might say when it comes to, <laughs> to trying to be humane. And so we spent all this time trying to think about what we were going to do about the mouse because we didn't want to use a conventional mouse trap, but we also didn't want it just hanging out in our kitchen. Yeah. So we ended up getting, Aaron spent all this time online finding a special trap that just kind of, you, you bait the mouse and then it goes inside the trap and sets Basically, its its weight causes the trap to close on the other end. Um, so it's not hurt or anything. It's just trapped inside this little tube. And, of course, the mouse scrambled into this tube at, like, what? At, at midnight yeah, or mid something. It was, like, at 1230 on New Year's. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we were, like, just falling asleep. And then we heard it. We were, like, oh. I think the mouse is trapped. Oh my god! So, so we, and then we we didn't have the best idea of what to do about it. We read all of these things on um, websites that said you aren't supposed to just put them back in your yard because, of course, they'll right. come back. Yeah, yeah, that it's, makes sense. So you just put it in the neighbor's yard. <laughs> oh, right. But you aren't supposed to put them too far away either because then they'll die and because they won't know where their food sources are. So oh, we no. said, we'll put them, there is a cemetery not too far away from where we live. It's like half a mile. We'll set it, we'll release it there and then it should, it should be like We've close given it enough. a fighting chance. We've given it a fighting chance. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, You've done the best you can at that point. <laughs> I, I'm not as good a person and I would have just killed the mouse. <laughs> Yeah, I think everyone, I told my dad and he thought I was totally nuts. <laughs> Nothing new there. <laughs> so I want to go back to something that you mentioned, Astrid, as you were describing how you both started on this venture. Um, I'm reading a book called Delancey by Molly Weisenberg, and listeners may remember on episode eight, when we were talking about our summer reading list, this is a book that's on my reading list. Um, Molly Weisenberg is co-host of the podcast Spilled Milk, and she and her husband Brandon started a New York style pizza restaurant in Seattle a few years ago. And I'm just, I can't help but draw a comparison um, between your, your two circumstances, because similarly, Molly's husband, Brandon, had this big dream of starting a, a pizza restaurant, and he didn't have any background in this. It was a new idea. Um, he, Yeah, it was just 
completely kind of out of the blue, but it was something he was really passionate about and he decided to go into it. And Molly was extremely supportive all along the way, but it wasn't ever really her dream. And, um, I haven't finished the book yet, but it's kind of like leading me to this conclusion that, you know, Molly kind of realizes, and I don't know for sure. So maybe I'll just update later, but that, she, it doesn't have to be her dream. She can be supportive, but it doesn't have to be her dream as, as, as well. So how do you see yourself fitting into this dream of Aaron's, Ostrid? Is it, is it your dream now too? Or were you ever just kind of like, oh, Aaron, this is such a strange idea, but I'm just going to be supportive of you. And <laughs> so how did you kind of... <laughs> like that at the beginning. Okay, okay. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, yeah, in the beginning... Uh, it was definitely, you know, this, this sounds totally crazy and there is a high chance that it may not work, but I'll support you. Um, I think Aaron can probably attest to the fact that I am, I tend to be more on uh, the, the questioning side. I ask more <laughs> questions. He would say I'm a pessimist, but well, I'm not a, a pessimist. She's a skeptic. I'm, <laughs> I'm a skeptic. Yeah. There. That's a slightly more positive. <laughs> Grounded. Yeah. 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 And, but I think, I think we sort of balance each other in that way because Aaron goes it, into things with a lot of optimism if and it just like, for it's her, going to work out. We would have bought a hundred acres and I'd be totally overwhelmed. <laughs> That's awesome. Amount of debt right now. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think, I think I like to think at least that my questions over the past two years, probably since you started thinking about this have helped him sort of be very realistic or plan a little bit more. She asked the hard questions that I don't necessarily want to think about in full optimism mode. So it's good to make it. She's yeah. Like she said, we balance each other out nicely and she really helps me think through the tough stuff um, that I wouldn't otherwise want to have to deal with. So yeah, it's been, I, I, with, I, I couldn't have done this without her, so I've been Aww. pretty lucky, yeah. Well, I've been lucky, too, because this is this is actually seeing Aaron do this and, like, sort of take off running. Uh, I mean, obviously, we don't know how it's turned out yet, right? We haven't had our first harvest yet, but from everything I can see, you know, we have a hop yard in our backyard that didn't exist six months ago, right? So so it's it's great to be able to see something that's just a dream turn into something tangible and it's inspired me to think you know maybe someday if I have a dream like that and and want to go off and try it um hopefully Aaron will be there able to support me in that so so it goes both ways too yeah it's interesting that you that you mentioned this I haven't heard of this book before I'll have to I'll have to grab it but um you know how she she, it seems like she's realizing this is not her dream but that's okay and she can still be supportive right and, and help help along and but also still not forget about what she cares about and what she's passionate about and and you know turn what her husband's doing into her be all end all if that makes sense right if it's not if it's not equally her dream then it's good for her to yeah be able to hold both hers and his dreams together yeah and so a couple things about that the first I guess is I'm still not a hundred percent sure where I'd like my career to go I'm just finishing my first year in the working world so I have hopefully have a little bit more time to think about that but um the uh I think that one thing that's great about um, Aaron's venture, I guess, is that it fits with both of our mindsets. 
like he really cares, you know, the same things that he cares about, sustainable agriculture, um, like sort of the locavore movement are things that I'm also pretty passionate about. So I don't feel so. So at least in that respect, from like the mission standpoint, even if not from the like physical hops planting or even the beer standpoint, I'm I'm very able to be very supportive because it jives with my values. Um, and yeah. Oh, I, I guess the other thing I wanted to mention is I've found ways, I think, to to help Aaron where he's able either not to devote as much time or doesn't have as much interest. Um, for example, I, I've been trying to help him develop the website a little bit because he's one I think he thought he'd have more time to work on the marketing business end as well, mm-hmm. but the hops planting and planning of the hop yard this year has, has taken more time than, than he maybe anticipated or, uh, different things have sort of, you know, happened that have made things take longer than we expected. So yeah, I'm lucky to have a, a good teammate who can yeah. kind of pick up pick up my slack where I'm, where I'm a little weak. Sounds like the elements of a good marriage too. <laughs> We're trying. <laughs> a year and a half in. A little yeah. more than that. Yeah. A year and nine months. <laughs> so yeah. So what what are your possible career options then, Ostrid? What what dreams are you kind of floating around? <laughs> that's that's a great question. So I'm still really interested in. in um, using my background, um, studying Chinese and spending time in China in my career, I'm just not totally sure what I want that to look like. So one possibility would be to continue doing research, um, or try to work for the government doing a similar, in a sort of similar analyst type role. Um, I think to, in order to do that, well, not in order to do that, but I think if I were to do that, I would want to go back and get a PhD in international relations um, with a focus on China specifically or on emerging powers, uh, I think, or authoritarian states, depending on the angle I'd like to take. And um, I'm not totally sold on the PhD option at the moment. It just seems it seems kind of long. I'm not sure I'm totally committed to the idea of focusing very closely on one narrow subject for multiple years and it would probably also entail at least a short-term move so it's a bigger consideration for us another thing I've been thinking about is um, perhaps developing more of a I don't want to say technical background but more of a, a background in a particular discipline or or profession so I've been toying with the idea of law school and um, focusing on Maritime and national security law. Um, so, for ex- so the idea would be that um, it would enable me to have a particular niche in looking at U.S.-China relations or China's relations with the rest of the Asia Pacific, particularly in the South China Sea. Um, so, those are the ideas I'm toying with at the moment. Um, we'll we'll see what happens. I'll keep you posted. Yeah. We'll be following. The hops take about three years to fully start producing. So, uh, and I the, have three years at this job. And she has as three long years as at her job keeps going well. <laughs> so, the hope is that by the time the hops are really rolling, she'll be able to kind of figure it out. Figure out what it is she wants to do next, whether it be law school or 
a PhD. Or, then, or not school and something else. Right, right. So. Yeah, who wants to do school all yeah. the time? You already have a master's degree. You don't need anything else. You're set. <laughs> I've also been thinking about, you know, working, looking at things from the business side of things, which I never really expected I'd be interested in. But that's something that um, working with Aaron on the hop stuff has actually made me a little more interested in. Um, and I think it would be really neat to work for a company trying to develop a strategy for approaching China or opening a their business in China. Um, but I have no expertise in that in particular. So we'll see if that happens. <laughs> that would be an interesting one. Yeah. And I think the most parallel to Aaron's experience, just kind of starting something new and putting yourself out there. Exactly. Yeah. So in, in three years after the hops are up, you guys can pack up and move to Nanjing for a while. <laughs> I'm sure Aaron would love that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Probably start to just keep an eye on things, at least during the summer. But yeah, uh, yeah we'll, we'll, we'll figure it out. <laughs> yeah, we have time. That's what we keep telling ourselves. We have time. <laughs> Definitely. I well, tend to be too much of a worrier. <laughs> oh, it's easy to do. <laughs> yeah, I'm always thinking about what's next. Like, what, what am I going to do next? Right. Let me have time. I need to start floating job applications. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, that's really awesome that you guys are doing this adventure in Virginia. Um, and we will definitely stay tuned. And for our listeners, we're going to share uh, the website of Heritage Hops uh, for you all on our website. So you can check out more of the work that Astrid and Aaron are doing down there. Yep. HeritageHopsVA.com. HeritageHopsVA.com. Good marketing there, Aaron. Good job. <laughs> Astrid has taught you well. How to get in the plug, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, thank you guys for sharing that um, with your listeners. We really appreciate it. Definitely. Oh, definitely. Thank you for coming on here and talking to us about all this stuff. And uh, I have to say, you know, you were talking about how this has been an adventure and, and, you know, you have yet to see whether or not it'll be a success, but... I think you guys already know too, it's been a success in a big way just because you're doing something creative, you're doing something together and you're having fun while you're doing it. You know, it's kind of reminds me of, um, of this podcast for us, you know, like this podcast is not a money-making venture. We have yet to receive a dime and we've actually spent a lot of man hours, <laughs> you know, making it a reality, but it's something that, that we're enjoying doing together. And even uh, if it ends, you know, next month, which is, <laughs> we're not planning on it ending, we'll still have gotten something out of it. Yeah. Right. It's a learning experience. Even just, yeah, what you, what you were saying about putting yourself out there, like trying to do something is sometimes the most important. Right. Right. Exactly. And trying to do something together. I think that's the coolest part. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's very true. Well, on that note, we'll wrap it up. Thanks so much for coming on the show, guys. It was a lot of fun. Thanks Thank for having you for us. Yeah, Thank you. Let's talk again soon. <laughs>
pour your coffee into an ice tray and freeze it so that you have frozen coffee ice cubes. And that way when the ice is in the coffee, it won't dilute the coffee exactly. as it melts. Exactly. So that's my addendum. Secondly, we need to check the inbox. So Zach, why don't you do that? Let's do it. What do we have? Oh, we have a piece of feedback from one of our listeners. Yay. This is from Dustin and he has two suggestions for us. Okay. Awesome. The first is to keep episodes at 45 minutes or less. Oh, okay. Well, we are not doing that We're not very doing well. that. Sorry, <laughs> Dustin. Uh, we're not doing that very well. We're trying to keep we're, it under an hour. We're trying to keep it as short as we can in truth. Yeah. And really what happens is the episodes end up being just under an hour in most cases. I think episode five with Jordan and Catherine was yeah, really long. Yeah, it was long. a little longer than that. But yeah. Um, yeah, we've ended up basically just doing our best to keep them under an hour because the people we talk to are so interesting and have such interesting things to say. It's really hard to figure out what to trim. Yeah, yeah. So hopefully the the 55 and 60 minute podcast length is not deterring your listening habits. Yeah, you could just start talking. I mean, you could just not listen to us. So you could just not listen to the first part right. or the last part. and Just just when I open my mouth, just, just fast, fast forward. forward. <laughs> The second bit of feedback from Dustin is about our website. Uh, Dustin's been trying to listen to our podcast on our website, and he told me that the problem is when he listens to it, if it freezes or stops at any point, he can't get back to where he was, and he has to listen all the way through again. Oh, we had another person. I think Christina had that problem as well. Okay, so sorry, Christina. Sorry, Dustin. We fixed that. So now if you listen on our website instead of through the iTunes podcast app or through Stitcher, you can... um, actually download the file, the MP3 file. So just go to our website. Instead of playing it on the website, you can download it and play it in you know, QuickTime Player, iTunes, Windows Media Player, whatever you have. And that way you can you can pause, fast forward, pause, stop, go back to places, et cetera. You won't lose so your place. We think we fixed that. Let us know if it does not work for you, and we'll look at it again. In the meantime, um, if you would like to contact us with your feedback, you can email us at Sally at vernacularpodcast.com. And if you want to be on a future episode of Vernacular, you can fill out our questionnaire, which is on our website, vernacularpodcast.com, and fill that out, and we will check it out and then contact you about being on a future episode, probably in season two, because we've already got the rest of season one booked. If you're on Twitter, follow us at VernacularPod. We'll follow you back. If you're on Facebook, facebook.com slash vernacularpodcast. And go to iTunes. We love your ratings and reviews. Thank you to all of those who have already rated us and already given us reviews. It's really helpful to us. Please do that if you like Vernacular Podcast. And if you don't like it, you can also give us a negative rating, but preferably not. (laughs) Hopefully you won't do that. But be honest. Yeah, honesty is is still good. (laughs) All right, we are just about out of time, especially for Dustin. So uh, we're going to wrap this up here. (laughs) Our closing music, as has been the case since episode five, is from Jordan Short. Uh, Check out episode five for more about Jordan and his wife, Catherine. For Vernacular Podcast, I'm Zach. And I'm Sally. Have a great week. When I'm by your side